Well, for those of you who came in a little bit later, um, good morning again. It's a privilege of mine to be able just to open up the Bible and be able to bring the Word of God for us during our time of preaching. Now, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and find your way, uh, whether you have a physical Bible or one of those scripture journals, but find your way to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 18 this morning and reading to the end of the chapter. Now, in case you are new or just visiting with us this morning, uh, a few weeks back we actually began a, a new sermon series where we started walking through the book of Genesis, right? That very first book of the Bible, where we're just walking through simply uh, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's called expositional preaching. It's, it's kind of the main diet, if you will, of, of what we do and our preaching time. And as I've mentioned, and biblical scholars have noted this, all good theology, and theology is the study of God, all good theology starts in Genesis. It starts in Genesis. Now, it doesn't stay in Genesis, but it starts in Genesis. And in particular, these first couple of chapters, chapters 1 and 2, are showcasing God's design for the world, right? His design, his plan for humanity and for it to flourish under his rule and under his reign. And these chapters indicate a world where there is no sin present. Nothing has gone wrong. There's no evil in the world. Unlike our world today, right? Where we look back now at everything and it bears the mark or the stain of sin. And I think in God's wonderful mercy and his providence, we have these first two chapters. So we actually can see, we can look, we can think about what was, what should be, and by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will one day be again. Now last week I highlighted that this wonderful plan of God uh, began through the work of a man named Adam. A man named Adam. But as many of us know and and as we can see through the evidence of, Adam failed. He failed to bring fruition. He failed to bring fullness. He failed to keep and protect this perfect world in which had been entrusted to him. But thanks be to God, the first Adam was not the last Adam. There was a second Adam to come, and that second Adam is the one that we know as Jesus Christ, who came to do what that first Adam failed. And really all the, the story of the Bible, right, if we just keep going from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, it's one story about that second Adam, about the person and work of Jesus Christ and his gospel, right, his good news of what he has done and will do in this world, specifically for sinners like you and I. But today what I'd like to do is just take a moment and look at God's plan for man and woman as we finish up chapter 2. Because in our text today, we'll actually see God perform the creation of Eve, the first woman. But in doing so, he also highlights this wonderful plan for the sexes. right? This wonderful plan for what does it mean to be male, what does it mean to be female. And then lastly, Moses will kind of add this, uh, this authorial perspective and how this design that was in the garden is a design for marriage that was going to be for all time. 
So we'll see the wonderful plan for the, the sexes and their differences. We'll also see the wonderful plan of God in the sameness that male and females have, and also that union of marriage between one man and one woman, which culturally speaking is, is at a crisis, right? Has always, certainly in the last 20 years in our country, seems to be constantly thought of in discussion, both in the church and outside the church, a topic of conversation. It's been under attack in many ways. It's been a mess in many ways. But I want to tell you, too, it's been a mess for a long time, not just the last 20 years in our country. As we'll actually see next week, as we get into chapter 3, marriage has been a mess for a long, long time. And so even though Moses, who's the author, right, he's, he's the author of Genesis, he's writing this to a particular audience originally, a particular audience that knows the first-hand experience of a broken marriage, of brokenness within maleness and also femaleness. He's writing to them, but we also know that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we also need to hear this as well. Because just like that original audience, we also know what it's like to have human relationships be not as what they were intended to be. Right? We know the pain of a broken marriage. We know the pain of, of conflict within human relationships. Whether it be your own marriage, maybe a past marriage, maybe a marriage of a family member, maybe a, a marriage of a friend or, or, or just a close acquaintance. Every single one of us in this room this morning knows what sin can do inside of human relationships. We all know that. And so before Moses actually gets to where that all stemmed from, where that all started... What he does is he just takes a moment and gives us that good design, that good plan of God inside of human relationship. That way we have something to look forward to. We have something to build upon. We have something to strive for. And we're not just left just to make it up as we go or whatever seems socially acceptable at the time. We actually have marriage before sin. We have maleness before sin. We have femaleness before sin. And so Moses is calling his audience, he's calling us today to just take a step back and to look in on God's good plan and design for us. And I think it's important for all of us in this room, married or not, right? We all need help. We all need help walking down this road. But let's go ahead and pause there for a moment. I want to pray just one more time. I want to pray for you, and I'm asking as I pray for you, will you just pray for me, and then we'll jump into the text together. Well, Father, I thank you that you are a God who has revealed goodness, and even goodness when it comes to gender, when it comes to marriage. But God, we are desperate for you to move. We're desperate for you to highlight and to illuminate and to encourage us that we can trust you, that we can depend on you, that we can lean upon you. So God, I pray for every man and woman, child in this room, that, that you would just encourage us, remind us that you're the almighty, powerful designer, God. God, we also want to pray for our kiddos in the room next door and the teachers serving there. God, as they 
are looking at the same text, they're looking at the same topic that we are in here. That every single one of us, Lord, would be able to walk out of this building loving you, Jesus, more than when we first walked in. And to that end, we desperately need you. So Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And let me go ahead and just read for us through the end of the chapter. It reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. All right, so the first thing that I want to highlight for us this morning, as we look at this text, is the plan and the difference that God actually establishes between male and female. We already learned in chapter 1 that when God made humanity, right, he made humanity in the image of God, he made it male and female. Male and female, both genders. Now we're circling back, as we discussed last week, chapter 2 is a circling back on day 6 of creation. Where instead of looking at at this day 6 from a a 30,000 foot view, we're actually looking at it from a ground level perspective. Of how did God do this? What did that look like? And earlier in chapter 2, we saw that God had formed Adam like a potter from the dust of the ground, right? He formed him, breathed life into him, and he placed him in the garden to work it and to keep it. But if you can direct your attention now to verse 18. For the first time, we are told explicitly that something is not good. Not, Not sinful, but just not good. There's not fullness to it. That man's plan in this world, his design for in this world, was not to be in isolation. He was not to be a lone ranger. That he was actually created, designed for there to be presence in working alongside of other human beings. And specifically, right, Adam's role and task that he was given, he could not do on his own. That's why it was not good. It was not full. It was not complete. He wasn't designed for that. And so God said that I will make a, what? A helper fit for him. For him. Now, a couple of things I want to point out before we actually move on in the narrative. One, and this is really important, church, that women are not an afterthought to God. They're not an afterthought to God. If anything, we actually, we actually begin to see the importance of women in the mind of God. That they were thought about. 
but they were intentional. Now, historians and scholars actually have pointed this out, that in all of the, the creation stories that are found in the near-ancient world, this is the only near-ancient creation narrative that actually talks about the creation of woman. No other story has it. Now, why is that? Well, I, I can't speak to those other creation narratives. But biblically speaking, we see that women are not an afterthought to God, that they were intentional. They were specific. They were designed. It gives incredible credibility to who they are and what they were designed to do. And as I've mentioned before, Christianity, therefore, actually stands in a radical contrast to most of the historic worldviews that have ever dominated this world. That Christianity was one of the very first, and certainly the most prolific, in actually acknowledging the value of women in this world. The reason why women have the rights, and specifically in our Western country, our Western culture, that they do today, comes out of a biblical worldview. That they're not second-class citizens. That their voice actually demands just as much respect and significance as any man's does. See, the Bible talks about the value and dignity and worth that women have that no other worldview does. Even today. And so even though this creation narrative demonstrates that, what I want to highlight for us is that at the peak of creation, right, the peak of this whole creative order that we've been looking at the last couple weeks, the peak, the crowning achievement is the creation of woman. In many ways, you could say that he, he did. He saved the best for last in a lot of ways. And we'll see the significance of that as we look into this more. But I, I, need, to, I need to talk about verse 18 in that word helper because that can be misconstrued very, very easily. When God says that he needs to make a helper fit for him, what does that mean? What does helper mean? Now, the word helper, let me say that it does not mean. It does not mean servant. It does not mean a lesser than person. But it actually highlights that this helper was created to do what a man could not do on his own. In fact, that word helper in Hebrew, it's the word ezer or ezu. It's used throughout scripture, but mostly in regards to himself. It could also be translated that it's a, a rescuer or an ally in times of trouble. But whenever God, the rest of the time when Scripture uses that word ezer, that Hebrew word, it's talking about God. I mean, and let me show you a few of these. The first one is Psalm 3320, where it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. Ezer. It's our helper. And our shield. Or Look at Exodus 18, 4. It says, And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help. Same Hebrew word. And delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So, so to be a helper, biblically speaking, is actually a, a title of important significance that God then actually shares then with woman in a certain respect. So when God says that he's going to make Adam a helper, it was not a put down. Right? It was actually a celebration. It was meant to stand in the mind of, of, of a Hebrew-speaking culture. They're like, a, like, the way that we talk about God as a helper, that's, that's what a woman was created to be? Yeah. 
important significance, uniqueness. In theological language, then we would say that male and females are created as complements to each other. That's why we say around here, if you go through one of our membership classes, where we basically just kind of explain who we are as a church, what we believe, what our emphasis are, you, you will hear that we talk about we are complementarian in our theology. And what does that mean? It means that we believe that male and female are both created in the image of God, both have value, both have dignity, both have worth. They have sameness as humans, but not exactness. Sameness, but not exactness. That God has given both men and women to this world to complement each other. To complement the work and the mission in which God has bestowed on humanity. To bring fullness to that design. And those complements sometimes result in specific roles in the church and in the home. But they are complements to each other. They serve dual purposes. They're both called to be in the game, but just not in the same way. And that's actually God's good design and gift. And so to, to simply blend and say it doesn't matter, they're one and the same, is actually to bring an assault to how God has actually created male and female separate. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Men and Women in the Church, which is a little book I highly recommend, he points out that this complementary difference can actually be seen where Adam and Eve are created. Noting that Adam was created outside of the garden. And Eve was created inside of the garden. Showcasing, maybe, a special relationship that Eve would have to the inner workings of the garden that Adam did not have. Now, before we actually move on, though, I need to point out, because... Truthfully, as um, I think many well-intentioned pastors and churches and theologians can go askew on this subject a little bit, when you begin to take this, this complementary theology, this sameness but also difference, and go beyond the realm or beyond the safeguards which the Bible actually gives, so we're not called just to arbitrarily then designate men's roles and women's roles based off what is culturally appropriate at the time. Right? We have to avoid that error. We also have to avoid the other error, so not just to be maybe misogynistic in our approach, but also say that it doesn't matter if you're male or female. That there's, there's no difference. We can just throw that out. Because it does matter. It matters in our text right here. It mattered to God before sin ever came into the world. So we should take note of that. And in fact, if, if we were to, to see where this particular text, um, the end of, of Genesis 2 here, in Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, you actually see this text quoted by Jesus and Paul repeatedly in the New Testament. And they quote this anytime a conversation comes up about gender or divorce or marriage he brings them all the way back to Genesis every single time. So we have to take note of this as a church. This is important for God. It should be important to us. Because here's, here's what I believe, that gender differences then actually rightfully point the paths that we both get to reflect the glory of God in. Now moving on. God not only wanted Adam to have Eve, 
but he wanted him to appreciate Eve in a unique way, as we see in this, this narrative. So after declaring that Adam needed a helper, a helper fit for him, what does God do? He basically gives this, this Adam a lesson in self-discovery. And this is, this is kind of comical to me. Basically, God says, all right, Adam, I got, I got a job for you to do. I need you to name all the animals. And as you're naming all the animals, I also need you to look for a helper fit for you. This forever mate in which you will be able to accomplish the mission that I have given you to work and keep the garden for the glory of God for all time. And so God, like a divine zookeeper, right, starts parading all the animals in front of Adam. And Adam takes time, right? He names them. I don't think this was a quick process. I think this was intentional. Right? He's naming the... I mean, this would be English, but, you know, naming a giraffe a giraffe, naming an elephant an elephant. But you can imagine the scene, then. He gets through all the animals, and he goes, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't see a helper fit for him. Maybe he even attempted at, at one point to try to bond with an animal. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Elf, the Christmas movie. Remember when Buddy Elf tries to, to give the raccoon a hug? It didn't go well. I think that may, may have happened. Where he goes, there's just not a helper fit for me. Or maybe it was, maybe, maybe when, you know, Adam laid eyes on a dog. He goes, there's something special here, right? Maybe like, like I have a, a, a beautiful tri-colored St. Bernard home, dog at home, right? This thing is, is beautiful from afar, okay? But as you get closer, you realize this dog is slobbery all over the place, constantly farting, constantly shedding. And so maybe Adam realized what I did not realize at first when I got this dog. I love my dog, by the way, but it never leaves me alone. She is always near me. There is no safe place in my home, including the bathroom. She does not care. But Adam knew after walking through all of these different animals that there was not a helper fit for him was not a, di- a divine complement to who he was created to be. And so I imagine that maybe he was feeling a little bit desperate then. And so we read in verse 20 that Adam did not find a helper fit for him. Which, by the way, is exactly what God wanted Adam to feel in that moment. A desperation, a need for God to move and provide. And by the way, God repeatedly puts us in those positions, doesn't he? Where the only answer is, Lord, I need you to do something. So in verse 21, with his head probably hanging still pretty low, God causes a great sleep to fall upon Adam, a divine nap. And it says that during his deep sleep, God takes a rib out of the man and he forms the first woman to later be named Eve, which is a wonderful picture of God's providence in the life of Adam. But it also communicates, not only are men and women created differently, but there's also sameness to their creation, where we see that both man and woman are created by God. And both man and woman had nothing to do with their own creation. Right? They had nothing to do with their own creation. Which then will later will speak to when Jesus talks about you need to be born again in coming in an understanding of salvation. It's a work of God. 
He's always been a part of creation. He's always been authoritative in creation, whether you're first creation or when you became a new creature in Christ. It's always been a grace of God. But it also communicates, I think this narrative communicates, there's also an interdependence between man and woman. Compliments to each other. Showcasing that man was needed in the creation of woman. But then there on out, who is then dependent on woman for the creation of man? Everybody. Right? This, this interdependence upon each other. Sameness, but not exactness. So some of those differences is that she was made from the dust. Or she was not made from the dust like Adam was. Right? She was made from his side or his rib. Now, some have gone to great lengths, church, to try to explain why the rib or why the side. Now, the Bible really does not say it. But there is a very poetic quote from the great Puritan Matthew Henry that I'll, I'll read to you this morning. He says, The woman was made, out of a, was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily confirm that, but I certainly think that we see that being true throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. So, God creates Eve, right? This, this wonderful compliment. And then wakes Adam up and says, Son, I got one more creation I need you to make. I got one more for you. And just as a side note, though, principally speaking, Whenever God takes something away from you, like Adam took the rib or you know, something away from Adam in the creation of Eve, whenever God takes something away from you, he always will replace it with something far more beautiful than you could ever imagine in the moment. We can trust God. He's, he's a good God. And so if he ever brings pain into your life, it's for good reason. It's for good reason. But let's keep looking at the text. Look at verse 22. So after he created Eve, it says that he brought this woman to the man. He brought her to the man. Adam not to go out and find her. Right? She was not playing hide and seek in the garden. God brought her to Adam like a wedding ceremony where he walked Eve down Right, this whatever that pathway is that you walk down the aisle, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Walks her down the aisle and presents her to Adam, right? That's why most theologians consider this the very first wedding ceremony. And what does Adam do? Which are the very first words of humanity that are ever recorded? He praises God. Look at verse 23. He said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You see, Adam had a case of love at first sight. He was not threatened by her, but he recognized her as this special 
compliment to him, right? This special compliment to him to explore and to exalt the glory of God with. He loved her, he cherished her, and he thanked God for her. He recognized that they are compliments to each other, completely equal yet distinct. And then in verse 24, Moses kind of pauses for a moment. Now, I don't know if he was reading from what he had written down when he was first telling this creation narrative to the Israelites in the wilderness. But at this point, he, closed, he was closing and he said, therefore, addressing them, but also addressing us. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh indicating that this this creation narrative that they had just read and heard was meant to go beyond the garden. It was still in play today. It was in play for them as much as it's in play for us now. God has not abandoned his good design. And so he makes it clear there is to be oneness between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Anything other than that is simply not God's good and right design of marriage. And let me highlight a couple of things that he makes mention of in verses 24 and 25. We see God tell the man that he is to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, that didn't really mean physically. Now, culturally speaking, a man would stay um, on, the, on the land that his parents were at. But what it's talking about is that the man had a leadership had a role with his wife that he was to implement. That his wife now superseded any other familiar priority that had currently been in place. That he was to step towards his wife. He was to bond his heart to hers. That he was to hold fast to her. That they were to be one flesh. And that oneness, that one flesh, can mean a lot of things. I think, practically speaking, we could talk about there's the oneness in marriage means that there's supposed to be right, one story to who you are as a couple. Not a you do you and I'll be me, but a oneness, one home, one bed, one bank account. Right? One goal for the home. There's to be oneness in all areas, but rightfully understood what one of the primary things that Moses was getting at is there is to be oneness in physical and emotional intimacy. That that physical and one that physical intimacy between one man and one woman was only created to be uh, seen and explored in a special relationship with a spouse that is radically committed to you why I think there's actually so much destruction and so much pain when there's physical intimacy, when there's sex outside of marriage. We might not see it at first, but can I tell you, it's like gluing two pieces of paper together. You can tear them apart, but there's not going to be consequences to it. It may not be just as the way it was before. But hear me on this area, because I know, I know for many of us, this automatically just brings up a ton of shame 
ton of guilt, a ton of conviction. And, and, and the guilt and conviction can be good. Right? It could be good to say, I, don't, I want to honor God with my body. But the shame I want to speak of, because the shame is where I want to speak, especially if you're a Christian today, that you are not damaged goods then. You're not damaged goods. That there is grace for you. God knows you and your life. He's not surprised. This is the very reason why Jesus came. It's the reason why he went to the cross. Not so he could exalt the perfect life, the perfect marriage and all of us, but to understand and put on display that none of us are perfect. See, Jesus knew all of this when he went to the cross. Because you can't out-sin the cross. But you also can't sin and worship at the same time. And that's what Moses was trying to remind his audience and the Holy Spirit's reminding us today. So we need to ask ourselves, is this our definition of marriage? Right? Or we've been caught up in the tidal wave of marriage is just whatever you want it to be. Whatever seems right in the moment. Or maybe marriage is not a big deal at all. It should actually just be thrown out. Well, maybe today is a day where you actually start to plant your flag in God's good design for marriage. Right? The Bible calls that repentance. When maybe that flag was not there all the time. And repentance is when you are no longer at peace. You're no longer at peace with anything that isn't reflecting the glory and the goodness of God. And that you are physically turning from one direction and going in a different direction. Doesn't mean that there won't be struggle. But it means that you are no longer at peace any time that you turn back. But to be clear, this is not where God's involvement in marriage ends, by the way. I hope you know that. Because even though God moves on, right, in chapter 3, what we actually see is this, this weight of this perfect marriage. We see what happens. And spoiler alert, this perfect marriage that we see at the end of chapter 2 is thwarted by sin. We'll see, we'll see next week that they didn't trust God's good design. Adam failed in his role. Eve failed in her role. They failed to complement each other. And we have been following suit ever since, church. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. Here's the gospel. God knows. And he's been working this plan, not only the plan of marriage, but also that plan of redemption. That plan to bring man who had separated himself from God with their sin and bring him back into fullness with him. Not by forgetting the sin, not by saying it didn't matter, but by Jesus saying it matters a whole bunch. I'm going to die for it. I'm going to take the penalty for it. Because truthfully, we have no fighting chance to uphold the perfect marriage. Every single one of us, if you've been married, we've already ruined that. We've already ruined it. But Jesus came to not only renew and to impart that good design of marriage, but also take those who have been left in the, the wake and destruction of, of jacked up marriages and say there is still purpose, there is still identity in you beyond your past relationship. That's why the Bible actually talks a whole lot about how marriage is actually a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. 
even when we think about God breathing life into Adam, beginning of chapter 2, one of the next times we see God breathing life again in the New Testament is when God breathed out his last breath on the cross, saying, it is finished. You are forgiven. So if you're married today, let me speak to you real quick. If you are married, pursue your marriage with the intent of Genesis 2. Out of a love for Christ, out of a need for Christ. I'm not saying start being perfect, because you guys will all come back next week and say, Pastor, it didn't work. I know, right? I usually get the front row seat to all this. But there's grace. God is still working. He's still restoring. So even if your marriage is broken right now, it's not where you want it to be, there's hope. God is always working things according to his purposes. But maybe it's a time to use to replant that flag and say, I trust you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Have mercy on me, Lord. Change my heart. Make me love my spouse in the way that you've designed for me to love my spouse. Or maybe you're single. Maybe you always have been, or maybe just this season of life, maybe through a breakup or a death of a spouse, you find yourself in a, a season of singleness again. One is going to encourage you, that is where God has called you to be right now. That's okay. Even if you don't like it, it's okay. And it's okay because you're not going to get a, a, a second class or a JV level of intimacy with God just besides because you're single. Remember, Jesus was single. And he was the most human person ever. The Apostle Paul, another example. You can still experience the intimacy and the riches and the beauty of the gospel despite your marital status. I'll remind you, marriage is that picture. But it is just a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. In fact, maybe the reason... Maybe the reason why the Holy Spirit highlighted in Genesis that out of the side of Adam came his beautiful bride, Eve, is because later on, the side of Jesus would be pierced. And out of his side came the beautiful bride, the church. Now, that's speculation. But what is not speculation is that the plan of God moving, is moving forward. Always have been, always will be. And we can take a step back and go, I need you, Lord. Just like that song we sung. I need you. I need your mercy. I need your goodness today. I want things to continue to improve. I want to be able to live in the forgiveness in which you've bestowed upon me. Because where I have failed, Jesus, you have not. And we can walk out of here. I believe, I'm praying, I'm trusting God for this, that we can walk out of here with a new recharged or maybe brand new charging for the love and the glory of God in the creation of man, woman, and marriage. And so as we end chapter two, and we're about to jump into what's known as the fall next week, let's celebrate God's good design. Let's celebrate that God has not just said, Hey, this world that you know, the brokenness that you see, that's just all there is. Might as well get used to it. Where Genesis 1 and 2 says, no, 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 no. There's something beautiful that I have created in the first garden, 
and I am going to give you all the more in the garden to come. And we can walk out of here, I think, rejoicing in that. So let's go ahead and end there. Let's pray.